So the context for this, just before we get to it, just we've been reading our way through John's gospel, and chapter 11 tells the story of the raising of Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus, with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, very well known to Jesus. He stayed in their home, we think, when he was in the south. They were personal friends. They sent word when Lazarus grew sick. Jesus deliberately held off going to uh, visit them when he might have healed Lazarus before death and uh, arrived. By the time he arrived, Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. Um, And so not unreasonable to expect that a certain amount of putrefaction had set in uh, after four days in a Middle Eastern grave. Uh, However, nonetheless, Jesus, uh, moved by the grief that Lazarus's death had caused, not just to the sisters, but to the whole community, goes and stands at the tomb and calls uh, for, has the stone taken away and calls for Lazarus to come out, which he does, wrapped in the grave clothes. And then because of that, there were many people from Jerusalem, only two miles from Bethany, and so Jerusalem, with lots of crowds beginning to gather for the Passover festival, lots of people um, got to hear about this amazing miracle. I mean, somebody who's been dead and buried for four days and yet is alive again, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious power groups, uh, decided that there were the seeds of revolution, a threat to their power, a threat to peace and stability, a threat to the temple and the Jewish religion. If the Romans clamped down on them, thinking that this was a, a kind of insurrection in the making, that Jesus was some hothead who was going to challenge Caesar. And so they resolved to have Jesus put to death so that they didn't lose any of their privileges or status uh, and their power base. And so there's this background climate of threat and intimidation. Uh, There's a contract out for Jesus, effectively. There's a price on his head. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are looking for information that would lead them to Jesus to arrest him. At the same time, there's a climate of expectation because uh, everybody's heard about this miracle and Jesus is in town and uh, people are wondering, what's next? What's, what's, what's this going to build to? Uh, what's the drama that's about to unfold? And so there's a, a climate of anticipation around. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to a place called Ephraim outside Jerusalem and uh, hid low there, not out of fear, but because he knew that it wasn't the right time yet for his mission to the cross. Okay, that's the background. Let's read the passage. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. 
It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Amen. May God bless his word to our understanding. I asked you to think about safe spaces earlier on, because all of us, uh, even the extroverts in our midst, sooner or later need a place to retreat to. And maybe you had that childhood place I just didn't get to you with the microphone. Maybe, uh, maybe you had your treehouse or the, the place under the stairs or under your bed or in the top bunk or whatever. I could go on forever imagining what might have been safe spaces to you. Maybe it was someone else's house. A safe space for me growing up was we had, there were two elderly ladies, sisters-in-law, who lived next door to us. And uh, our houses were terraced and had a communal passageway that led out to the gardens at the back. So it was possible to go out of our house and into their house without actually going out. Uh, And so me and my brother spent a lot of time uh, with these two elderly ladies who were just substitute grannies. And they were, well, one of them in particular was just enormous fun and just let us do things that our parents wouldn't let us do, you know. Back in, the, back in the bad old days in the 1970s, I remember learning how to, uh, Auntie Mina was one of them, and, and she smoked, and she used to let us light her cigarettes. Fantastic. When you're a kid, you know, you're not really allowed to play with matches, have anything to do with cigarettes, and all the rest of it. But back in the 70s, you know, when nobody cared, uh, it was things like that. Just great fun. And they taught us card games and all sorts of stuff. It was great. It was a safe space. It was a safe space. Back in the house, there were things like homework to be done. Uh, You know, there was helping out to be done. But next door was a safe space. And a place where you could forget the rest of the things going on in the world and just enjoy being in the space. The climate that uh, I described to you earlier on, where Jesus finds himself now, is a climate full of other people's expectations. It's a climate full of hostility. There's a price on Jesus' head. The most powerful people in the land are conspiring to have him taken out. And, you know, I think we all know well enough how life works, that powerful people know the right contacts. Powerful people have uh, the right access to the right people at the right time. And so I don't imagine it was going to take very long before the Pharisees or the Sadducees would uh, agree. And of course, we know that Judas Iscariot was their uh, agent in all of that for 30 pieces of silver. And so there's this brooding, ominous threat over here in the background. And then there's this heightened expectation amongst the people who were hungry for more and greater miracles and who thought, if Jesus can raise the dead, then even if we go to war with the Romans, and we're all slaughtered, not a problem. Jesus will just walk through the battlefields and raise us back up again. I don't know what they were thinking. What they certainly knew was that Jesus was apparently unstoppable and completely uh, powerful, even over death itself. 
And we know that on the other side of this episode, and Jesus says it himself, she's prepared me for my burial, there is the cross, the reality of what we know to be Jesus' passion and death. And yes, leading to a resurrection, but it was a very dark place. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Jesus didn't relish it. And so we have this little episode, which is a safe space. This little episode that we read of is a little bubble. In amongst all of that threat and expectation, all of the misunderstanding, all of the raised tensions, and then the reality of how that was going to play out, we have this as a safe space. Now, there's another safe space as well uh, when Jesus celebrates the Passover with His disciples. That's a safe space too. But we need those places, and just reflecting on this passage, you know, it seems to me that there's a, a little picture of what we are called to be as the church, that this shows us a little glimpse, if you like, or it's possible to see in this little story a picture of the church as it's supposed to work. In our lives, we have problems, we have tensions, we have demands upon us, we have things that we're uh, perhaps putting off or avoiding, things that we're dreading, things that we're anxious about. And that may be on a global stage just reading the news, or that might be in a personal sense to do with career or family, who knows? It's your story. But of course, we, we live in a world which is riddled with anxiety and tension, and I would suggest that it's uh, certainly been a long time, I would think, since society, and perhaps never before, globally, have we been aware of all of the problems and all of the tensions that exist. And so, we carry more of a burden than any other generation before because we know too much. We know too much about the world. We know what's going on with the planet. We know uh, about the, the big power games and the toings and froings. We know about the climate of threat. And yet, we have this picture of Jesus going to a meal which was prepared as a, as a, a, a dinner to honor Jesus. A dinner was given in Jesus' honor. A dinner given by uh, Martha, presumably, well, she certainly was, you know, we always kind of put Martha in the kitchen because the little that we know about her pretty much anchors her in the role of caterer, host, provider, server. The one who got in a strut when Mary was sitting listening to Jesus and Martha was left to do everything on her own. Martha, the one who was the first out the door to meet Jesus, no nonsense, goes straight to the task when Lazarus had died. I reckon, you know, if, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, and if you're not, just zone out on this, but I reckon Martha was ESTJ. She's one of those kind of get-out-there-and-make-things-happen type people, or a type 8 if you're into the Enneagram. And here, Jesus comes with His disciples from Ephraim and was invited back to Bethany for this dinner. People were gathering. We're told it's six days before. There was a one-week purification ritual that took place before the Passover. 
And so the reason we're told that it was six days before the Passover is to tell us that already hordes of people were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover because the purification ritual lasted six days, and therefore they had to be there in order to be ceremonially clean and ready for Passover. And of course, we know that lots of people from Jerusalem were witnesses to Lazarus's resurrection. And so we know that there's this growing climate, that the rumor, rumor mill will be working overtime, and that the expectations will be stoked. And in amongst all of that, we have this safe space, a place in which Jesus is present as the guest of honor, and a place in which I think we can learn a little bit, and yes, I'm going to overstretch the little that we know uh, about these three siblings, but they serve to point us to what God calls us to in order to enjoy safe space and to create safe space for one another. Because the body of Christ and the fellowship of God's people is intended deliberately by God to be a safe space for all who in faith come and seek it. And so, where the climate outside is full of expectation, full of people wanting something. I got an email yesterday from someone called Simon, and I know a few Simons, but I don't think I know this Simon, and it simply said, hi, let me know if you got this. I want you to do something for me, Simon. To which my reaction was, no. <laughs> I don't know who you are, and that's actually quite rude. And I think this is probably a phishing PH email. So I just deleted it. But at least Simon, whoever he or it was, was honest. I want you to do something for me. Because that's generally what we experience in life. I want you to do something for me. It's when you get those rubbish telephone calls. They're not really concerned about the accident you have, in case you were in any doubt about that. They're not really concerned to get you the best deal on your electricity or gas. They're not really concerned to do anything for you. They want you to do something for them, because everybody's on the make. Everybody's on the make. Except this place was a place of grace. And this was a place where people were not there to be on the make or to get something, but the people that were there were there, in a sense, to respond to Jesus. And it was a place of beauty. It was a place of love. It was a place of, tr of trust. And it was a place where people that were there could breathe a sigh of relief and belonging And as a church, although we're in the city center and although we're a fluid uh, church in many ways just because of uh, university term times and tourists and visitors and people who come and go and the, just the nature of where we are, our calling, I believe our responsibility, is in amongst the city center where everybody's on the make. 
the shops and the offices and the restaurants and the cinemas and all the people round about us, the city center exists to make money and to spend it. But ours, the responsibility and calling in the midst of all of the opportunism and the business and the commerce and all the stuff that goes on and, and describes the world are on every side of this building, our calling is as Christians to come in a different spirit. Our calling as Christians is to create a community of grace where we know people by name, where we eat together and share food together, where we, in, within the limitations of where we are and the busyness of people's lives, share life together. And you have a part to play in all of that. And if this isn't where you regularly worship or, or where you, which you call family and home and community, well, wherever you regularly go, that's where you need to invest. Because it seems that the presence of Jesus in this house was the occasion both to honor Him and for people to bring what they had and could bring. So, what can we learn? Let's just take these three siblings. So, what did Martha have that she could give? Well, we're told that a dinner was given in Jesus' honor and that Martha served. Now, I don't imagine that Martha single-handedly made all the dinner. I'm sure there were a whole bunch of uh, women, because let's be honest, it was the women who provided and prepared the food. That's just the way it worked in those days. But Martha was in charge. And Martha brought what she had to bring and to do what she was able to do. We're told that Martha served. And so, you're calling as a disciple of Jesus, and yours may not be cooking. In fact, looking around, some of you probably definitely not cooking. But what is your service? What is it that Jesus has gifted you with? What aspect of the heart of God have you been uh, entrusted with to show forth and to give back to His people first and to the world? Because Martha's thing was hospitality and welcome. And we deliberately have food in here as part of our service and eat around these tables because hospitality and welcome is the heart of God table fellowship is where Jesus was to be found. They called him a glutton and a drunkard because he spent all his time eating and drinking with people, and he hung out with the wrong kind of people, as we are doing now. And so, a gift and a grace of hospitality, and the gift to give back whatever you've been entrusted with as a gift shaped in the image of God and enabled and equipped by God, is your calling. And so, each of us, as part of our discipleship, has a calling both to serve and to minister. And those two are not the same thing, okay? So, let me just, you know, unpick that a little bit. Because there is serving which anyone and everyone can do. There's a level of service which you really don't need to have a gift uh, or a particular calling to do. There's the, there's the level of serving that recognizes that if the tables need wiped or the chairs need put away, if the dishes need washed, or uh, somebody's just come in and they need spoken to, that actually there are some things 
that you just do. I often tell the story of, you know, and I know I've told it here before, but I always think of, you know, the lady that fronted up at George Fox's healing services and swept in and said, I have a gift of healing. How will you use me? And George Fox said, that's great. Could you put the hymn books out, please? She said, I haven't come here to put hymn books out and swept off out again. Well, if you won't put the hymn books out, if you won't do the ordinary stuff that anyone can do, and I know there are times, I'm going to pick on you over there on the couch, there are times when going home and getting your laundry done for you is a nice thing. But for the most part, we all have to do our share of the laundry, right? Martha served. And just a short time later, of course, Jesus would take off his outer garments and get a basin of water and wash his disciples' feet and say, I've done this for you, now you do it for others. And so there's a calling on each of us as Christians to go and serve, to do the dirty jobs, the unsung jobs, the unwelcome jobs, the boring, ordinary jobs that just need to be done. And then there's the ministry, and I would venture to suggest that Martha's ministry was a ministry of hospitality. And so she exercised the gift that she had been given because that was her expression. You know, there are some unsung gifts. Hospitality is, is, uh, you know, is, is a gift, and some people are amazing at it. Some people are amazing at welcoming people in, at remembering names, at being sensitive to people. Some people are amazing just at the whole catering thing. We have a fantastic catering team that, that just produce food, and you just rock up every week and think, oh, I wonder what's for lunch today. Well, other people did the work and the purchasing and the preparation and so on in order that you could turn up and just have lunch today. So how then is your discipleship expressing itself both in the service that is ordinary and common to us all and in what the, the question of what has God shaped and called you to do, and are you doing it? What is your ministry? How has He shaped you? And there are lists of gifts in the New Testament, some of them charismatic, supernatural gifts, some of them gifts of uh, ministry. Administration is a gift of the Spirit of God. And so Martha contributed to creating the safe space, the family of God's people, with her service and with her ministry. Let's think about Lazarus. What did Lazarus contribute? Lazarus, I have to say, spends a lot of time lying down. <laughs> I mean, he's lying down in the tomb for four whole days. But even here, when the dinner's being given in his honor, where is Lazarus? He's reclining at the table. Lazarus doesn't, as far as we know, appear to be doing very much anywhere. And we could easily have a pop at Lazarus because it's all we know about him, and it's not fair because I'm sure Lazarus was a hardworking, productive young man up until he got sick and then afterwards. But what is it that Lazarus brings to this safe space, this community of grace? Well, maybe Lazarus brings to you and me the recognition that actually his role in this situation was not to do anything. Lazarus's calling in this situation was to be, was just to be. And so perhaps for some of you, the calling 
comes not to do or to find more things to do, but actually to stop doing and to be. Martha was, after all, chided for not stopping just to be. And Lazarus was there not doing anything or serving or producing anything, but because of the work of God through Jesus in his life, Lazarus's testimony was enough. Lazarus just breathing and having a pulse was enough. Lazarus just reclining next to Jesus was enough. And you know, you're being here with your testimony and with your desire to be in the place of God's people and amongst the family of God, your desire to be just, as it were, reclining in the presence of Jesus. We're not asking you to lie down necessarily. Is your commitment to testifying to the work of Jesus in your life? You know, it's very tempting on a Sunday. Well, I haven't done it myself because I'm the minister. I have been tempted at times past to put a notice up at the front on a chalkboard on a platform. I was really tempted to do this in Gerloch Head, my last church, a few times. And just to put a chalkboard at the front that said, guess what? I felt like not coming today. Because you think it doesn't matter whether you come or not. Or perhaps... Being in the body, and I'm not sticking a heavy on you here, but I am charging you to reflect that if Jesus had been at that dinner, and Martha and Mary had been at that dinner, and Lazarus had decided that he was going to get, you know, you know, he was going to have a game of football with the lads, that would not have gone down too well. People were coming to that house. Why? Because they wanted to see Lazarus because they wanted the testimony, because they wanted to see the work of God that had been done in Lazarus's life. And you know, where you and I come together in the body of Christ and make it our priority to be in the place that God has put us to worship Him is our saying, I want to be, just to be a sign to other people of my love for Jesus and of the work that he's done in my life. I want to be present as Lazarus was present. And Lazarus didn't have to do anything. He just had to be. You know, and church as a safe space is an opportunity for us just to be and remember who we are. That it's not by our work or by our own hands or by our best efforts. It's because of the work Jesus has done and is doing in us. And so our being and our testimony are hugely important. And then, of course, there's the ministry of Mary, which was a ministry of sacrificial generosity and a ministry of worship. That alabaster jar once broken, you couldn't put it back in the pot. And once that perfume was poured out over Jesus' feet, and Matthew and Mark tell us it was poured out over his head, once Jesus was covered in that perfume, there was no putting it back in the pot. And Judas criticized her for the waste and the extravagance, and yet Mary wanted to give to Jesus the most precious and valuable thing that was in her possession, because she had got back the most precious thing, or one of the most precious things in her life, her brother. 
And so her response was to say, what then of value can I give? And I don't know where she got that perfume from. And I don't know whether it was passed down to her. I don't know if her mother had died and it was a family heirloom. We could make up a million stories about where that nard, that expensive perfume came from. The point was that Mary took the thing that mattered the most to her and gave it to Jesus. And so there's a little picture of our calling within the body of Christ to ask ourselves whether Jesus gets our first or our last, whether He gets our, uh, our, our priority or our dregs, whether He gets what's left or whether He actually gets what's important and valuable to us. And what does it look like in your life to break perfume and pour it over Jesus? And Mary worshipped with her hair, and a hair, hair in, in that culture, a woman's hair was a, an incredibly significant and personal and precious and important thing. And so Mary, with the most important thing she possessed, and with something that was deeply personal to who she was, lavished her love on Jesus. I love the sensory overload in this story. And if you think of Let's just, let's just think for a little minute about smells, because Martha, if you like, contributed to that gathering probably the smell of a very rich roast dinner. I don't know what they ate, but I'm fairly sure it wasn't just pizza bread and falafel. I'm fairly sure there would have been a lamb involved. And so here is the rich smell of cooking a room filled with people and with incredible smells of a good meal. And then, of course, at the end of the meal, as Mary broke the perfume, the, the, the place was filled with this incredibly concentrated, rich smell, which would hang on Jesus so that He would still be able to smell it when He was on the cross a week later. And so Mary's gift stayed with Jesus. What did Lazarus contribute? Well, Lazarus didn't contribute a smell. He contributed the absence of a smell. Because apart from what Jesus had done for him, Lazarus, let's face it, Lord, there is a bad odor, for by this time he's been in the tomb for four days. And so Lazarus contributed, if you like, the absence of the rotting disease, the putrefaction of death. Lazarus contributed the smell of life rather than the stench of death. The only bad smell in the room was Judas, it seems. I've been away doing training throughout different cities in Scotland this week, and doing the same training every day. It's been Groundhog Day. Every day, get up, do the same thing, travel and repeat. And largely, it's all gone, you know, very well. But there was just one moment on the first day when just one person decided to take issue with something. And, and there was just a little brief pointy-shouty moment where someone was getting a little arced about something. And it was interesting to observe how in a, a climate of a room where everybody's on site and, en and enjoying it and responding well, it just takes one comment 
It just takes one jarring moment. It just takes one harsh word or angry expression. It doesn't take very much. And there's a tension comes into the air. And afterwards, it's the only thing people talk about. You know, it doesn't take very much for us in the body of Christ to contribute and drop those little grenades of word or action or unlove that can actually change the dynamic. And so, it's not just what we bring or what we contribute. It's what we hold back. It's what we sit on. Martha brought her service. Lazarus brought his testimony and the gift of just being without doing. Mary brought the most precious and expensive thing that she had to offer and offered it with personal worship. And Judas contaminated the space with his bitter little remark about how Mary's gift was an unwelcome extravagance. Jesus ate the meal and enjoyed it. Jesus sat next to or reclined next to Lazarus and enjoyed the fellowship of the man that he loved with his two siblings, the, the sisters. And Mary offered her gift, and Jesus received and enjoyed as worship what she brought. In fact, the only person that Jesus took issue with in that whole story was Judas. Because you see, Jesus wants this to be a safe space. Jesus wants his church to be a family of God's people where we bring who we are and what we have and what we can. Where he asks us to filter out that which is of unlove or which would sow disharmony or disunity. Outside the house, of course, we have the baying of the wolves. The large crowd of Jews continued to stream towards their house to see Lazarus, and the chief priests therefore increased their uh, uh, contract to include Lazarus as well, that he should also be taken out. We are a community of grace and of God's people. We are a place where Jesus is glad to be present. We're a place and a people where Jesus calls us to offer who we are and what we have and what we've received from him. And Jesus delighted in being in that house, and I believe Jesus delights in being at the table with his people and amongst the family of grace. And he calls us to bring what we can to contribute to that community. And he calls us to leave outside the things of judgment, of carping and criticism and complaint, because outside in the world, there are forces which are ranged against the gospel and against the truth of Jesus Christ. There are forces which are ranged against the church. But the good news is that across this city and across this land and across this nation and across the world, there are communities where Jesus is present. I was up at a little church earlier on. There were just about 12 of us there. The presence of Jesus was in that space with just 12 people. And there'll be many other places, big and small, where the worship will look very, very different and diverse. But where it's a community of testimony of salvation and healing, 
a community of service and ministry, a community of generous sacrificial giving and personal worship and devotion, you will find the marks of discipleship because that's what discipleship is. You are called to play your part, to be here or wherever in order that Jesus can continue to tell his story, and he will until he comes again. I wonder if you ask yourself the question, who would you be in this dinner party? Are you the Martha, making sure everybody's fed? Are you the Lazarus, just glad to be there and bringing your testimony of what Jesus has done in your life? Are you the Mary, bringing what you can give or donate or the worship that you offer? But perhaps more importantly, which one would you say you're not? Because it's the one that you say you're not that you might want to reflect on. Because that might be the one you need to give a little bit more attention to. I know which one I'm not, but I'm not telling you that. It's between me and Jesus. Let's pray together.